And you don't have much else going on, too. So watching Ice Cube Melt might be the highlight of your day. Who knows? Hello and welcome to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. This is episode three, and I am one of your co-hosts, Martin Grossman, and I'm joined today, this evening, uh, by my other lovely co-host, Will Algren. Willie, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right, Martin. I feel like a man who's been yanked out of the guillotine after that Liverpool-Manchester United game this weekend was canceled. I'm very relieved I didn't have to watch that after seeing what they did to Roma in midweek. How are you doing? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. Um, I I kind of wish that Barca's midweek game against Granada had actually been postponed as well. Um, I wish we'd seen some protests that might have meant that we could have played that game at a different time and maybe had a different result. But in fact, that that game is actually what inspired, in some part, um, what we're going to be talking about today. So at least it's given me subject matter to work with. So. I think without spending too much time on the intro, I guess we might as well just kind of hop on in and start talking about kind of what we're thinking about today. All right. Cool. So as mentioned, uh, I'm basically going to kind of overview this situation that happened recently with Barca and Granada uh, in midweek. And I'm going to tie that into a piece that I actually wrote a while back for Touchline Theory, the blog. Um, and we're going to chat a little bit about a topic that I think is pretty close to my heart, and I think that some people will hopefully um, relate to and, and find that it resonates with them as well. So we're going to start with context, um, just the background. So again, Barca lost to Granada this week. Painful, painful loss. Uh, the league was once in our hands. The title was something that was in our control. And now we basically relinquished that. Um, Barca was leading in the game and one nothing, and then Granada scored two goals, basically entirely against the run of play. Uh, I, I've got some stats here, just for context, to kind of paint a picture of just how one-sided this was. Um, Barcelona had 81% ball possession. They had 16 shots to Granada's five. They had six corner kicks to Granada's one. They had 868 passes to Granada's 186. We're talking total domination here on all fronts except for the scoreboard, which, as everybody knows, is obviously maybe the most important one. Maybe. And so what ends up what ends up basically happening, right, is like Barca's up one nothing. Darwin Machis scores the first one to draw Granada level. And um, I, I want to talk about that goal uh, real quickly. Um, I was watching that game too, and this goal was uh, kind of sadly the the fault of Oscar Mangueza, the guy we talked about for most of the podcast last week, or one of the guys we talked about. And Mangueza had a pretty good game besides that, but it still was kind of funny to see him uh, kind of have that big failure right after we talked about it on the podcast, especially considering that uh, I think we single-handedly managed to sink the Super League by also talking about it on episode. And then... <laughs> That went down the next day. So I, I can't wait to see how we'll be uh, publicly proven wrong this time. Yeah, I think we're just like on a jinxing streak at this point. Yeah. So maybe maybe we have to say something that'll kind of push the tide in our favor this time around. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's an unfortunate goal that that I mean, guess I kind of let slip under his foot. I honestly am not going to blame him because I think that mistakes <laughs> like that are 
I, I don't know. It's forgivable. It's not forgivable. I don't recall whether he used, tried to clear the ball with the outside of his foot or take a touch to the outside of his foot, which maybe wasn't the best idea instead of taking it with the inside. But regardless of the goal itself, what ends up basically happening is 10 minutes later, we see a whole onslaught of, of substitutions. And I'm calling it an onslaught because it entirely changes the shape and the dynamic of, of play for this squad, right? So to start off, Barcelona fields this lineup. We've got Griezmann and Messi up top, De Jong, Eli Moriba, and Busquets in the middle. We have Jordi Alba and Sergio Roberto as wingbacks, Umtiti, Pique, and Mingisa as the three in the back, and then Ter Stegen in goal. And so that's a reasonably balanced thing that we've done quite a bit. It's kind of like a four or a three, five, two. It's kind of like a three, one, four, two, but it's like, it's balanced, right? It has structure. You can see triangles. If you kind of draw this out, it's, it's a nice formation. Yeah, those are both reasonable formations, not, not too far outside the lines of what you'd normally get. But, but what ends up basically happening is that 10 minutes after Machis scores, we see the following substitutions. We see Pedri come on for Mariba, Dembele comes on for Mingesa, and then 10 minutes later, just after going down another goal, so now we're down one to two, Trincao comes on for Busquets, okay? And so what this ends up kind of doing is it takes our original formation, which seemed pretty reasonable, and it totally, totally drastically morphs it into now what we basically have as... A, if we're if we're gonna be kind to this formation, this is a three, two, one, four, where we've got kind of again, kind of, we have Dembele, Griezmann, Messi, Trincao up top. We have Pedri as like the lone attacking midfield presence, Jordi Alba and Sergio Roberto as wingbacks, and then Umtiti, probably a recessed De Jong and Piquet as our center backs. But realistically, what ends up happening is that for the final 10 minutes of this game, Piquet actually starts playing as the striker, which is kind of one of his favorite things to do. And De Jong is also largely pushing up into the box. And what you kind of see is that Barcelona starts to kind of pump a lot of balls over the top, long ball, very anti-Barca kind of approach. And we actually kind of end up basically having six up top in some crazy fashion. Maybe Messi drops back a little, maybe Griezmann drops back a little, but it's like we have De Jong, Piquet, Dembele, Griezmann, Messi, Trincao all up the field. Behind them is Pedri. Jordi Alba and Roberto are also pushing high. And then you've got what? Umtiti left behind. And so what this, the picture that this kind of paints is like this incredibly drastic sudden shift uh, when, when basically something went wrong. So, so Barcelona had this great win streak. They lost El Clasico, but the title now after Real Madrid lost some points was kind of like still in their hands. And then suddenly Granada goes up a goal after scoring two that were entirely against the run of play. And so they freak out, they, they sound the alarm, and they, they kind of revert to chaos. And so this incredibly attacking, incredibly imbalanced like formation, from what we can see, basically killed the final 10, 20 minutes of this match. Barcelona very much shot themselves in the foot instead of actually inspiring a resurgent comeback. And so the reason this is an issue is not that it's an isolated incident that people are frustrated about right now because there's only however many four or five games left in the season, but it's not a new thing. And so Coleman has actually done this quite a bit in the past as a coach, and he it had seemed as though these kind of substitution patterns and these kind of sudden, you know, abandonment of the blueprint tactics had gotten out of his system, yet here we are, and here we are kind of witnessing it again. And so mm -hmm. not only is this 
not an isolated incident. There's a lot of people that are noticing this as well. This isn't just, you know, me in my own kind of like isolated cage recognizing this as a problem. There's a guy on Twitter but who goes by his handle is Tactico Moderno. He goes by SM who tweeted out something that I think reflects the same kind of sentiment. And there were a lot of comments reflecting the same idea, which was I really thought Coleman had got, uh, gotten over the whole sub on as many attackers as possible when things go wrong phase. I'll never understand this man's obsession with seating control and unbalancing the team by managing matches as if he's playing FIFA. And like, you can, you know, read into that facetiously or not, but it's evident that there's a lot of people that have noticed this and a lot of people that are frustrated by it. And so today what we're basically going to do is we're going to take this like seemingly incongruous idea, this overhauling of a tactic at the end of a game when things all go wrong and we're really going to take it apart and we're really going to dive into it and try to understand what they are, why they happen, what coaches and teams might do differently, and then also have a bit of a debate on a handful of different topics that Will actually maybe disagrees with or, or has different perspectives based on the the original article itself. Yeah, I, I don't want to make things too easy for you, Martin. So I'm going to be as disagreeable as I can. Good, good, as you should be. Uh, but I'll start by being agreeable and set off a bit of a foundation for us to base discussion off of. Uh, so we're going to be talking about, I think, what you called frantic finales here today. Uh, this is something you see in all sports. In football, probably the most well-known example of this, you have the Hail Mary pass, where a quarterback will just launch the ball into the end zone, no real target, just hoping that you have enough people in there and someone's going to catch it. Uh, in basketball, mm -hmm. you kind of have this phenomenon where teams will just stop trying to play defense entirely. They'll make one attempt to steal the ball, and after that, they'll just foul and try and get it back as quickly as possible. And in hockey, probably my favorite of these, they'll just pull the goalkeeper entirely, sub on an <laughs> extra attacker for him, and just throw caution to the wind. And soccer is right. a game that kind of has elements of all of these things. You have kind of the football equivalent where instead of the Hail Mary pass, you'll launch these long balls into the box. Uh, basketball teams play the full court press, try to win the ball back quickly. That's something that's pretty common in soccer too, where you'll end up with pretty much everyone pressed up into the opponent's half of the field when this happens. And the same as with hockey, you'll make attacking substitutes. And sometimes at the end, the goalkeeper will even come up for a corner. But the, the thing that really ties all of these together is these are things you would never see at the start of the game. You know, these right. are ideas that are incredibly risky. But at a certain point, the coaches and players feel like this is our only option. And I hope that this will get us some points quickly. And sometimes it works. And a lot more of the time, these things do not work. Yeah. And I think that the, the key concept here is that like these these moments, these moments where one team like we have with this Barcelona Granada game, where one team suddenly realizes they have a lot at stake, they have a lot to lose. And that moment triggers like a what I'm calling a surge of desperation. And the problem, like you're mentioning, is that that surge of desperation often yields a counterproductive result. And so what we're going to kind of dive into a little bit today, too, is like, what exactly does that look like? And and the fact of the matter is these moments, these frantic finales um, that are unnerving for players on the field, for coaches, they stir the stomachs of the fans because it's it's tight and it's at the end of the game. These are super common things over the course of a season. Like if you're a top club trying to dominate a league, there's going to be five, eight, ten matches over the course of the season where you really, really have to grind out a victory at the very end. And you're going to see these frantic finale scenarios come up. And, and it's kind of like this crunch time concept, right? We're getting into crunch time. We have to we have to get things done. And the, the argument that I'm basically making today is that, you know, these actions, like I mentioned, 
they the, the, the what ends up kind of happening is that they can often be kind of like entirely deleterious that actually worsens the quality on the field it interrupts momentum and instead of fighting for something better than the current result it actually can tend to seal your fate in the current status and so again i want to reemphasize what will had said like sometimes we experience these spectacular jaw dropping moments right but typically it simply does not pan out. And, and, and one of the things that I, I want to kind of mention here as an example for soccer specifically is Llorente's nod down goal for the UCL for Tottenham, right? This is like a classic example that is pretty recent that a lot of people remember pretty fondly where Tottenham basically subs on this tall striker who's well known for his aerial dominance. A ball gets pumped up to him. He nods it down to Lucas Moura. Lucas Moura finishes it, and then Tottenham are through the next round for the for the Champions League. And it's this hugely historic moment. It's 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 like just like a fever dream, total fever dream. But as wonderful as that memory is, it is a very very rare occurrence. It is something that a lot of people are tempted by, but not many actually benefit from. Yeah. And so, what I want to kind of take this with is like okay in the all too often case in which this doesn't work that we play these long balls at the end of matches and the last 10 minutes of the game are wasted with us totally abandoning what we were doing for the for the first 80 minutes and now we suddenly change course will like what is the typical spectator response to this sudden shift well i think the spectator's response is it, it depends it depends on what happens in the game because if it doesn't work out in a game like uh, the one against Granada this week for Barcelona, obviously no one's that happy. But like right. you mentioned too, I mean, it, it's stuff that kind of gets forgotten. When when this happens and it doesn't work out, it's like, at least we gave it a shot. I think the the more dangerous or the more negative fan reaction is when people don't try this. Because if if a team doesn't look like they're going to score for the first 80 minutes and the coach doesn't make a change, then he, he's going to get blasted in the media for doing this i mean people are going to be all over him people are going to be saying oh, why didn't you make a sub why didn't you change the style of play and even if he does and it doesn't work out people are going to be over him saying oh you should have made these subs earlier and i, I think you know soccer fans are just a very impatient group of people and uh I, there's there's some legitimate reasoning reasoning that goes into it for a lot of people but um i joined twitter this week and now feel more confident than ever in saying that for the average fan, I mean, not a lot of thoughts going into this. This is just a, this isn't working. <laughs> I want something different now so that maybe yeah. it will work. Yeah, but I think that the, the too little, too late thing is very, very common. I think that like you see that often with reporters too. At the end of games, the reporter goes up to the coach. They, they tried some stuff, but it didn't work. And they said, hey, why did you sub these guys on in the 85th minute instead of the 80th, instead of the 75th minute? And, yeah. and that's or, such a common narrative. 93rd minute, which I see happen a lot. These players will get subbed on for the last, you know, one minute, 30 seconds of games. I saw it, Arsenal made a double substitution when down 2-1 against Villarreal this week. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Are you just like covering your bases? So if someone asks you like, oh, no, I made the subs. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't really understand those substitutions. I don't think a player is going to have much chance to have an effect on a game getting sent on for 30 seconds, but I agree. It's, it's something that play that fans want though. Fans want to see kind of these changes. And while, like I said, I think a lot of it is just kind of being impatient. I think there are some legitimate reasons. I think the most common one that I see given is fatigue. This idea that, Oh, these players are getting tired. They're not able to play our normal style of play anymore. 
maybe we need some fresh legs on. We need to change the style and try something different because this hasn't been working for 70 minutes. And I think that's that's a pretty valid claim on the surface. And, and I think when, when you say that, you mean that in reference to the whole frantic finale as a concept, not necessarily just late substitutions. It's any sort of sudden shift that is basically like the line of logic says fatigue is the reason. Like you're tired, your decision making becomes lazy and you're forced into kind of changing something, whether it's a change in style or changing subs. Yeah, you need you need something because if if your style of play hasn't been working, then at 80 minutes, there's a sense that your players are getting more and more tired doing this. And if it hasn't worked right. so far, then it's probably not going to now. So, And I think I think there's another angle you can take with the tiredness thing too, which is basically that claiming, like the idea is like you claim that it makes athletes prone to error, right? Like when I have my legs feel like they have lead in them, I'm more prone to, mm -hmm. to, to messing something up. And so the, the, the logic kind of continues by saying that, okay, like, you know, if you introduce these more wild card long ball scenarios, then maybe it's going to be more effective late in a match when defenders might mess things up, as opposed to early on when everybody's kind of sharp and with it and doesn't have the fatigue setting in. And, and so maybe that's something else to kind of look at. But the, the argument that I would kind of pose against that too, which again, that's like a common thing that I've seen. One question I would basically ask is like, if you're going to use fatigue and, and the error proneness as a motivation to suddenly like abandon ship and, and do something entirely different for the last 10 mm -hmm. minutes of a match, you know, what I would argue is like, okay, the game might slow down as you get fatigue. Yes. You might see more sloppiness. Yes. But I guess my question is like, aren't both sides experiencing the same thing? Like does fatigue really yield the losing team an advantage or does it, actually impact both teams equally right and like my question here is like if you imagine a, a long ball that's pumped up the field and you have a defender and an attacker that are both going out for the header and you're saying oh well i'm doing this because they're tired and I'm, I'm changing my strategy because of that wouldn't you think that the center back and the striker who've both been running for 85 minutes will both have the same negative impact to their vertical jump such that it kind of cancels out the mode like the reasoning here like both players are going to both be tired and so they're both prone to error and it doesn't really yield an advantage what do you think about that it's possible but in a lot of cases that's going to be a substitute forward going against a center back who started the game and I, I know that's that seems like a little nitpicky thing but i think that's kind of at the heart of this too is that i think it does yield an advantage to the defending team over the course of the match when fatigue starts to set in especially in a game we're talking about like this you know a game that maybe one team has been dominating, but is behind it. I mean, the the pressure of having the ball that much, of having to make runs off the ball, of playing this possession-heavy style of play, that really wow. wears on attackers in a way that maybe playing more reactively and just standing in the box and clearing balls does not. So I think I think you could make a pretty strong argument that fatigue generally affects attackers more than does defenders. And the biggest piece of evidence I'd use to back up this argument is just looking at the players that get substituted during games. Because, I mean, almost every game I watch consistently, I, I don't see defenders getting subbed off in the 60th minute because they're tired and they need a replacement. I see that happening to right. strikers and forwards all the time, even the best forwards. Sometimes you just need those fresher legs to be able to, you know, make that darting run in behind or get onto a ball attacking. And if a defender gets subbed off, it's generally because they're injured, they're having a terrible game, or they're going to try some sort of tactical shift. So I think, well, I think over the course of the match, then, yeah, I, I think the attacking teams start to get more hurt by this. They start to be less able to play their style of play, while the defense is still kind of 
in a decent position because they they've maybe been running around a bit, but not quite as much. And I think maybe what you can kind of take that uh, to another kind of degree too is like if you have a substituted attacker versus a defender that's been on the field the entire time, the attacker mm -hmm. might kind of have an advantage here, right? By virtue of the attacker that was previously on the field needing to be pulled off because of tiredness, right? As you had said, off the ball runs for 80 minutes, however long. Another interesting angle, I guess, to tack onto this yet again is like, what if you have a striker who has played the full game and a defender that has played the full game too? Then it almost like this, this kind of logic would push almost against this concept of like rationalizing this resort tactic idea even more because now suddenly you have an attacker that's significantly more exhausted than the defender. These long balls might actually be much easier for the defender to clear away because the attacker has an even more kind of effect of that fatigue on their tired legs if, again, they haven't been subbed off. I think there's a lot of debate here in any case. Um, and, and maybe this is something that, that you know, if somebody's listening and has any opinion on the on the impact that fatigue might have on encouraging a team to to do something entirely different at the end of a game fueled by desperation, I think I, I would love to hear that. Um, and, and so I think despite that debate, though, I think there's there's some things like a couple of logical traps that are definitely more concrete, um, things that are maybe more straightforward. And so a question I have for you, Will, is like, you mentioned a couple of examples of like these Hail Mary concepts, right? You talked about football, you talked about hockey, you talked about basketball, you talked about soccer. I guess my question to you is like, can you think of any unsuccessful ones? I know I mentioned Granada from this week, but is there any unsuccessful example of this where some team tried to do something entirely different and it didn't work? Can you recall anything like that? Um, well, I can, but that's because I'm a Liverpool fan, and that's kind of what I watch us do every week. <laughs> but I, I see where you're coming from, and generally, no. I, I can't think of a bunch of examples of, you know, outside of Liverpool over the past few months of games where, you know, a team was really pushing for it, then they didn't do it. And I that stands out in my memory. I think, you know, the, the successful ones are always going to stand out more. And like, like I said, with the fan response, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's kind of forgotten. It's this idea that we gave it a shot and that's good enough. At least we tried something. I, I think what we're kind of getting at here is this idea of the availability heuristic. Okay. And so the, the availability heuristic in short is this idea that our minds tend to make decisions based on the most immediate memories that come flooding to it. So just by the same token that you were pretty easily able to conjure up examples of different sports in which this tactic, you know, maybe worked, or we could talk about the Urente goal as an example that comes to mind of, oh, well, this is a situation in which the Hail Mary actually was really effective and broke, you know, records for Tottenham in a, in a competition they tend to not break records in. I think what, what ends up kind of happening here is this, this, this concept basically says like when we are in crunch time or when we're under pressure or just generally speaking, we tend to kind of conjure memories of the most readily available things. And the problem, like you've just kind of demonstrated is like, we never conjure memories of the failures. We never conjure memories of the things that get swept under the rug because they're swept under the rug. What we remember in moments like these where we're pressed is the situations in which okay, Tottenham bombed the ball up to Urente and it worked. So maybe we should do that. Yeah, and, and these things are very established kind of cliches in the football world now too, of bringing on a tall striker and sending in some balls to him, an Andy Carroll type if things aren't working out. And, and yeah, when you're under pressure, you know, the most readily available thing you're going to go 
for the angle that makes it seem like you have a shot and not the voice in the back of your head saying, oh, hang on, we did this a couple times and it didn't work out. You know, you always still think it can work. I, yeah. And I think another kind of concept that tacks onto that is this notion of what I'm calling the real problem, right? So the real problem, this is R-E-E-L. That that's R-E-E-L, not R-E-A-L. But the real problem, tongue in cheek, is basically a selective sample size issue. And, and what this kind of gets at is the fact that YouTube really propagates these images and memories kind of highlight real problem, right? Where it's like, we are, are we determine success on these types of internet platforms by clicks and likes. And, and what ends up then happening is that sensationalism becomes kind of like gold in, in that world. And so the more flashy clips that you can string together with cool music in the background and cool effects, the more maybe you know exposure your channel gets or your platform gets. And so this idea of, of montages and collecting clips and selecting what things the public remembers is kind of like a artificial facade that we as fans consume. And it's common, right? Like you go online and you go on YouTube and you hear of this new player that your club is like scouting and you look up you know, skills and highlights, what 2021, right? You look up like goals yeah. and assists. And what you don't see is all of the things that they maybe haven't done to make that highlight real. And so this kind of peddles these images and memories that are attention capturing, that are the Yorente examples, where when you are in the situation where you're pressured, you your mind just wanders to the lowest hanging fruit. And it's fueled by the fact that people want to see the crazy comebacks, the against all odds, the 1% chances that ended up going in, they don't want to admit that 99% of them haven't. And we kind of sweep those under the rug, we, we overshadow them, and we kind of adjust our worldview in a way that kind of blinds us, in a sense. And yeah, you never, never hear about any famous lottery losers, so... Exactly, exactly. And, and so the other kind of angle to this too, I'm just piling on, piling on these logical fallacies, is the hot hand fallacy, okay? And I'm sure you're gonna be really familiar with the hot hand fallacy, Will. It's this notion that a sequence of successes will actually project into the future, right? And so you mentioned basketball earlier. One classic example of this is a three-point shooter that's on fire, quote unquote, in basketball, right? And this is this idea of on fire in reality maybe does, maybe doesn't exist, but the idea is that it's an exciting mechanism that commentators will use to get fans on their feet, right? It's always cool when your pitcher in baseball gets hot throwing strikes. But but the fact of the matter is that these streaks, in in large part, are the product of a lot of randomness with a bit of skill. And if you take mm -hmm. a three-point shooter and you say, okay, they've scored their last four shots, they are killing it out there get the ball to him because he's hot. He's on fire. The problem with that is that if you take a, you've taken a sample size of four shots and he's made all four of them. If you zoom out and you look at that player and you see what their performance is over the course of a thousand shots, then you're going to have a much better picture as to their actual scoring capability from that range. And so the high hand fallacy basically true. says like, I... it says like, the, the sequence of successes within a small sample may not necessarily continue. And that's kind of like the logical fallacy here. But you were saying something, maybe maybe countering that point. Yeah, I, I think over a very long period of time, that is true. And these streaks will happen and, you know, they'll, they'll even out eventually over the period of a few years. But I think 
I think there is something more to them in the shorter term. I think confidence is a very big thing, you know, soccer and even in a sport like basketball, if you're using the example of a bad three point shooter hitting four in a row, it's like, you still think he's going to hit the next one. And, and in a situation like that, even if you know, you know, if we're watching the Warriors and, you know, Steph Curry has missed his last five shots and Draymond's made his last five, like everyone knows, you know, just in a vacuum, you'd want to give the shot to Steph. But on the day, you're probably going to give it to the guy who's made his last five shots in a row. Because mm-hmm. confidence just kind of feeds in that way. And, and it really affects the way players play. And I think connecting back to soccer, one player I'd pick as an example of this is Divac Origi, who is very much a hot streak player and, and has kind of survived the past couple of years based off one hot streak, a uh, pretty legendary one that he had back in the summer, spring and summer of 2018 or 2019. Jeez, can I even remember? What year? 2019, we won the Champions League. I, I um, think I, it's, a good, it's a good point. I think confidence certainly plays a part. Confidence is kind of like a harder thing to measure. I think that if you consider things like this, like a three-point shot as a, as a coin toss, the idea is that if you have if five coin tosses in a row that go heads, that previous set of data has no impact on whether or not your next coin toss is going to end up heads. It, now, it doesn't. Does and Origi's uh, goal-scoring record during that hot streak has turned out to have absolutely no impact on what his <laughs> goal-scoring record since then has been. Because it, it was a hot streak during that period. It, uh, it started earlier in the season. There was that Everton goal where it bounced twice off the crossbar and he had it in. And that, that was the first time he had played for Liverpool in months at that point. And then the idea after that kind of became, oh, well, we subbed on Origi and he got this weird late goal once. Maybe it'll happen again. And then it happened again against Newcastle. And then it happened in the Champions League semifinal against Barcelona. And then it happened again a couple weeks later in the Champions League final against Tottenham. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, that one. oh my God, this is going to work every time. And so for the next <laughs> season, Klopp keeps on subbing it on. You know, Even though he plays dreadfully, he never even looks like he's going to get close to scoring. It's still right. this idea that you know, in some way he still has that hot hand. And eventually, you know, it will work again. But it hasn't yet. And it doesn't look like it's ever going to again. And, and another example that I have of that too is Christoph Piatek, where this is another very, very similar scenario. Like this guy lit it up for a very short period of time, right? I have, I have from from the Wikipedia, I cited this in the article in and of itself. Um, he in in the summer of 2018, Piatek signed a four-year contract with Genoa for four million, right? He scores four goals, including a hat trick, in the opening. Mm-hmm. 19 minutes on his debut against Lecce. He then scores in the opening six minutes against Empoli. He scores his first brace like against Sassuolo in a loss, but then he also scores again in the next week against Lazio. And he becomes the first player since Shevchenko in 99 to score five goals in his first four Serie A appearances. Okay. And, and he looks so, so good doing this too. So good. And, and he, he looked like he was unstoppable out there. I mean, he was scoring all kinds of goals, left foot, right foot headers. I mean, he looked like he was going to be the next big thing. And, and what, what happens to him happening? now? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, he then got this Milan transfer. He, he, he upgraded in Serie A, and that failed. And now, if I remember correctly, he's playing for Hertha Berlin. And this guy that was once this seemingly unstoppable force, if you take a look at, like, the top 19 Bundesliga scores of the campaign, he does not feature in there. Oh, he is not in the top 19 scores in the Bundesliga this year, at yeah. least at the time of writing. 
an even worse uh, look for him is that he doesn't even start for Hertha, who are 17th in the Bundesliga right now. So it's quite and the fall. So, exactly. And so what this what this basically the story kind of shows is very much like the story of Icarus, where he got too close to the sun. He got way too hot too quickly and then burnt out of the sky. Right. And so hmm. what this idea kind of admonishes us for is getting too ahead of ourselves with this hot hand fallacy. And critically, that a small sample of successes is unlikely to be representative of a longer term trend. And that's how I want to kind of yeah. tie this back into the into this frantic finale concept, which is that for us to view the Urente Hail Mary as a success story that deserves to mold future tactics, that would be almost as criminal or just as criminal as like writing a review after watching only three seconds of a feature length film. Like we would never do that. We would never watch three seconds of a movie and be like, all right, I feel like I can basically get the full picture here. So then why do we so confidently do the former? Why do we say that something that happens with such a tiny little, you know, sample size that is a hot hand type of thing? Why does that so easily entice us to think that that will kind of continue? And so that's a third kind of example that piles onto this you know, list of, of logical fallacies that it's a reason why these types of things are tempting, but also a reason why they don't necessarily work. And yeah. what I want to then segue this into, too, you mentioned a lot about this earlier, is this idea of fan ambiance. And this is kind of like the final thing that I want to tack on here. This notion that moving is better than standing, right? Pressure, people in the stands, eyes watching us, it forces us to do something. Since basically like in the face of danger action is very much perceived more positively than inaction right and the the problem here right is like this desperation you mentioned this earlier too like oh trying to show the fans that you're doing everything you possibly can to squeeze out the victory right this yeah. desperation like you're a fan that's watching your team and you see them fighting for every last ball and maybe launching these balls long and doing quote unquote everything you can that moves spectators to the edges of their seats, right? It gives this illusion that you're doing everything you possibly can. And like you mentioned, what happens when we don't do that? What happens when we don't pump these long balls and sub on a bunch of attackers and pull our goalkeeper? Then the fans kind of have this impression that, okay, well, maybe they aren't trying hard enough, right? It's all about yeah. the optics here. It's all and, about and the so, optics. And so, right. And so what ends up happening is like, the optics might suggest this like stagnation if you don't do these things. Um, but, you know, and, and that like the lads on the field, like aren't leaving everything out on the pitch, such a common kind of narrative that they're out of ideas. And, and so basically what managers have to do is like, they try to quell that upheaval. They try to basically, they lend into the, the pressure and, they do these, you know, they make players do these unusually valiant runs. They push up out, up the field. You see, like, you know, Sergio Roberto taking the ball from his own eight, you know, like six-yard box to the opposite one. And usually that gives the intended effect off. But as yeah. we've mentioned, and as has happened many times this year for Barcelona, it seldom warrants consistent results. I can't think of a single example this year in which we've had this situation where we put on a bunch of attackers or we totally change the formation and we start playing long balls instead of possessing the ball carefully like we've done the entire game. And it's actually worked to, to push the tide in the other direction. And then the thing that's, I think, most jarring about the, the Granada fixture specifically was like, you watched this game, Will, right? Like, Barcelona was certainly dominating this match. It's not only the stats, but it's like the quality of chances, the 
number of opportunities. The fact that Granada scored their two goals off of maybe what was three shots. Ter Stegen had zero saves in that yeah. game. And so, it, what, what, and then they end up doing this kind of Hail Mary approach to the, to the end. And so it's like, this never, never seems to work. It's a very, very, you know, once in a lifetime, Urente, pump the ball long type thing, but it's very, very rare. And so, the, the kind yeah, of, and I watched that game too. And I mean, like you said, Barca were playing well. And it seemed like if Kamen had just left things as they are, you know, they, they had that free goal against them to make it 1-1. But it seemed like on the balance of the game, if they had just kept on going the way they were attacking for the first 70 minutes, they were probably going to grab something. But I think I think what affects Komen and what affects most coaches is, you know, like you said, it's about the optics. You have to look like you're trying. And, you know, I know this is touchline theory. We like to keep things theoretical, but I'm going to try and connect this to a real life example uh, for me. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I coach myself. I have been for a few years. And I mean, this season, especially I ran to a lot of games where I was kind of in these situations where I thought my team was playing great, but we, we weren't winning. We weren't up on the scoreline. As we wind down to those last few minutes, it's like, even if I know in my head, like I have the best players out on the field, like we're getting chances. I feel like a goal is coming. There's part of me that is just like screaming, like you have to do something. You have to make a change right now, you know, because otherwise it's, it's just not, nothing's going to happen. You know, there's, there's this idea that you have to be called into action. And a couple of times that got to me and, you know, I'd make a change and be like, I don't know if this is actually going to do anything, but I just feel like I need to do something like to make it seem like I'm trying or like to convince myself that like I made an effort at this. I, th I think that's a really hard thing to avoid to just sit there and, you know, quietly hope that this works out. Totally. And I think that when the stage is even magnified to the professional scale, those pressures are even more present, right? Like the coach, the coach of, of, a, of a club like Liverpool or Barcelona, if there's a couple, if there's a sequence of games in which maybe they, they kind of took that inaction route, maybe there's their job is starting to be in question. Right. And yeah. like, and maybe, maybe the, the fans start protesting or maybe you start seeing yeah. things that are very dramatic. You talked about Twitter being very reactionary. I think a lot of fans expect the most out of their teams and they get very, it's, it hits them personally when things don't go their way. And so at the top level, that that feeling is like even more unsettling where it's like right now, this entire year, like Komen's job has been in the balance. The entire every game he wins, people like him. Every game he loses, people dislike him. It's like he knows that everything has such a ridiculous degree of scrutiny that with all those eyes, yeah, he, he feels the need to do something. And I think what I would basically argue is like this this idea of, of a traffic jam. And, and I'll, this will be the, my final comment before we go into the halftime break. But in a traffic jam, one thing that my mother always used to tell me, if I'm stuck in traffic and you are trying to, say, get out of traffic and, and you merge into another lane, what always tends to happen is that the new lane that you merged into now ends up going slower than the previous one. And you see your former spot in line advance, and now they're zipping through traffic. Yeah, so, it's like Office Space. You seen that movie? I don't think I have. What's the... Oh, what's the there's, a, there's, there's the famous opening scene from Office Space. is just like two minutes of this happening to a guy. Um, <laughs> I, figured, I figured you had read that. When I saw this in the outline, I'm like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Yeah, you should look that up and watch it later. You, you too, I mean, everyone listening. It's a great I, scene. I mean, I th but I think that's like kind of a a convenient analogy where it's like a lot of people feel the need to switch lanes when sometimes 
staying in the one that you were in is really the way to go. And so I guess we're going to take a break, go get our water from the touchline, and I think yeah. then come back and talk about kind of ideologically why this is a problem at its core and maybe what coaches and teams can do instead. Yeah, but that's the takeaway message from this half. Is stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. What's up, guys? And welcome back to the second half of the Triple Threat Podcast. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> oh, my is that, God. Is that not what it's called? No, that's not what it's called. What's, what's the name of this thing? Oh, I'm going to leave it to you. You can flounder on your own. Uh, right, hold on. <laughs> I got I got to do some research real quick. Touchline you Theory. Are... Welcome back to the Touchline Theory podcast. I'm here with oh Martin Grossman. Uh, maximally unprofessional. But we're back. We're back. <laughs> Half number are we going to roll with it this time? Keep the yeah. organic intro after I wasted Go. our last one? <laughs> Go for it. Yes, you can Let's make up it. for it now. The oh. Triple Threat Podcast is our new <laughs> alter ego. Um, okay, take it away, Will. Where do we go from here? I thought you were starting. Um, where do we go from here? We we spent a lot of time in the first half kind of looking at you know the pressures that exist in these scenarios and why coaches and players might resort to them. So this half, we're going to maybe look a bit more at why these things don't work or in my opinion, why they might work sometimes. But uh, Martin, I'll start with you. Uh, this is your article, your episode. So like, what, what are the main reasons that you think these things fail, that this is not a good idea in soccer? For sure. So I think the main thing that I would cite is that these types of tactics, as I mentioned before, when you do something the entire game, you maybe spend all week, all month, all season preparing a style and a methodology only to give it up the second someone rings the alarm and the second something goes wrong. I think what this basically is, is just a hopeless relinquishment. It's a moment where you're just out of ideas and you're letting go of what's basically an ostensibly failed approach, quote unquote failed approach. It's not something that necessarily has failed. It's something that up until this point, you've convinced yourself that this isn't working. You mentioned your personal mm -hmm. example earlier where it's like, Maybe you've dominated the entire game. Maybe you have your best 11 out there. Maybe what you're doing is actually clicking. And maybe the team is actually doing exactly what you've worked on in training, et cetera, et cetera. But the dominoes simply haven't fallen yet. And so to take that, which is a strong thing that maybe if given 20 more minutes could bear fruit, and to suddenly chop that tree down and to totally go for an entirely different approach, to me, that feels very kind of, it's 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 relinquishing something. And yeah. The, the analogy that I have here is like the idea of a fire drill, right? You do fire drills to practice order under stress. A fire drill, the purpose is that everybody gets in line. They're organized as they exit the building. It's like an optimization thing to get the most people out of trouble as quickly as possible. I love that all of your analogies are about scenarios that like elementary schoolers are familiar with, like <laughs> birthday parties Pir and ghost pirate Pirates. ships and fire drills. <laughs> You know, we got it very gotta, accessible. I like that. I, yeah, I have to tailor the content to our audience. You know, shout out to any mm, elementary school teachers or elementary school kids, excuse me, that are listening to this that are, you know, really, really able to understand the concepts as a result of these analogies. That's really what I'm going for here. But 
again, like the point here is that scrambling for the exit, a mad dash for for getting everybody out of the building is the best way to actually get more people hurt. And so the the, the concept is like, yeah, you you need to be organized. You need to be you need to control things, right? And so one of the things that I also want to kind of tie this into is like we you mentioned the Hail Mary as kind of this concept that is a specific example of a frantic finale. And I think that this in and of itself, I ha- I take issue with it because I think that for me, strong sides prefer control. However they might define control, I think that strong sides prefer mm. control. I think that inferior sides are, it makes more sense for them to kind of choose approaches that are more chaotic, that are more disorganized, where, you know, for a team that's maybe 18th in the league, a 50-50 might actually be a wonderful chance compared to their you know, odds of getting up the field with careful passing or some other kind of approach. For a team that's really good at what I just mentioned, a 50-50 is basically this this relinquishment. It's this, you know, you're you're basically taking something that was in your control and turning it into a a toss-up, right? And I have another So what you're saying is that you think the the better teams might be teams that, you know, leave as little in the hands of the opposition as possible. That you're saying that the the ideal football team would be one that can show up and play the same way every week, regardless of who they're up against, right? That they just don't take what the other team's going to do into account that much. Well, I think that's one way to look at it, but I think the the way that I kind of would like to frame it is this idea of like predeterminism as the ideal state for strong teams. A coach that coaches Mm -hmm. the top team in a league wants to have their fingers on as many dials as possible and know exactly what those dials are going to look like in the game in order to ensure that nothing out of the ordinary is going to happen, they're going to collect their three points and they're going to keep on moving to the next fixture. Teams that don't have that assuredness are not able to afford that luxury. And so they might kind of have more of a tendency to approach these chaotic tactics. And so I guess what my approach is here is like, if you are one of those strong sides, switching to these like 50-50s with this Hail Mary concept of launching the ball into the end zone is pretty inferior compared to what might have been your previous approach. Well, it depends how good the previous approach is, I guess. And I mean, I I agree with what you're saying here. I think there is a lot of value in controlling the outcomes, but I think you can maybe go too far with that. And if you're looking at a team that's aiming to play, you know, kind of the same way, regardless of who they're up against, it's looking to kind of control their outcomes and not react too much to the other team. Uh, there's managers that do this. This is a very popular style. I'd say managers like Conte, uh, Klopp, Guardiola all have these very identifiable styles that you know how they're going to play pretty much every week. And that's great um, when it's a great system and it works. But one kind of downside to that is if you know how these teams are going to play, it maybe becomes a little bit easier to game plan how to defend against them. I think we've seen this year, it's it's very possible to game plan to stop a Klopp attack. We've seen teams game plan to stop a Guardiola attack. And I don't know, there's there's managers like Thomas Tuchel and Zinedine Zidane who have been maybe a bit more reactive in their styles, who have adjusted more from game to game and have been very yeah. successful doing this. I would agree with um, that. But, but I think what, what I'm kind of getting at here is it's it's possible to game plan against any traditional attack, right? If we're, if we're staying, you know, in the realm of normal soccer here, you know, if, if you think that Klopp's going to try to build up through the wings and use Alexander Arnold and Robertson sending crosses, like you can develop a game plan to try and stop that from happening. It might be tough to do correctly, but it's possible. And I guess what I, what I want to get at here is when you kind of give into chaos, when you embrace the frantic finale or whatever we're calling it, 
mm-hmm. then you know the downside as we've said is you can no longer guarantee that the attacking team is going to create good chances by doing this that they're going to be able yeah. to score but the flip side is you can also no longer guarantee that the defense is going to be able to stop this you know a defense might have been completely stifling everything you do in the attack during the uh, first 80 minutes of the game but if then you turn the last 10 minutes into just having a bunch of people stand close together launch balls into them and see what happens that can go either way that's impossible to plan to defend against hmm. but i, I think I'd... what's clear either side you know either side of this argument that you're on is that you need i think you need some kind of second plan i think there will be times in games where your plan a is just clearly not working at all and something needs to change you know and it may be against Granada, that wasn't the case, where if it given another 20 minutes, Barca would have scored. But there are games where, you know, given another hour, Barca probably still wouldn't have scored in that match. And, like, what do you do then? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we we might actually tackle that question of, like, the time limit at the very, very tail end. But I think that the the mm-hmm. thing that we're kind of looking into now is, like, yeah, what, what if these if these frantic finales aren't the way to go? I think I would, I would argue that, certainly, in the case for Tuchel and... and, and Zidane designing kind of like your approach based on the upcoming opponent is something that's very common at the top level I think it's something that like is more afforded when you have scouting and you can watch everybody's games on TV and you can see how the team that comes up is going to play and specifically Mm -hmm. morph your tactics to reflect that but I think in the case that again it's like you're you're a strong team maybe you haven't been able to afford that that luxury if you're like coaching a youth side or something like that or if you're simply at the top of the league and you have a style that you stick with that works that has earned you a 21 game unbeaten streak like it had for barcelona prior to playing that very zidane a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. i think what you mentioned is exactly the first thing that i would say coaches should do instead of this sudden alarm ringing i think it you have to plan contingency plans right you need to have a plan a and a plan b what I would propose, again, ideologically speaking, is that you should never come up with a radical plan B on the spot. If you're going to be a team that, like, in when, when things don't go out, go your way, and they don't work out, and you have 20 minutes left in a match, and you're going to bomb the ball off the field, that needs to be something that is actually, like, built into your ideology, something that is built into the way that you train. And we can have a whole other conversation on the difficulties in really emulating these pressure-sensitive scenarios in practice and whether or not it's really you know, a possibility to, to simulate like, oh, the, the season's on the line, you, you have to score this goal or you lose the season. Cause what, what punishment can you give in practice? Right. Oh, you might have to go run. You might have to do things. Right. So there's, there's, there's things that make that hard to, to do in training hills, but I would say, yeah, hills like, but, but, but what I would say is like, it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to mimic those scenarios. And so whatever kind of, approach that you intend to have you need to have again these contingency plans we're going to play like this for the entire match when it's zero zero if we go up two goals we're going to shift to this if we go down a goal we're going to shift to this but you need to organize that you need to train that beforehand instead of doing this sort of like yeah toss up at the end of the game and saying all right this isn't working we're going to go to having umtiti as our center back and that's it because that's yeah, you don't want to you don't want to have to invent the parachute while you're already falling out of the airplane. You want to be prepared exactly. for this kind of thing. So. There you go. There's an analogy that might appeal to our uh, elementary school, you know, kid listeners, assuming that elementary school kids parachute a lot. I don't know. I, I don't think they're allowed to. They're too young or too Maybe short or something. You guys will yeah, get it definitely. later. Don't worry. It's a, it's a height limit thing. 
you'll grow. You'll grow soon enough. <laughs> but I think like the other thing that I would add is like there's there's these virtues of persistence and composure that are super important, right? We talked about not switching lanes in a traffic jam earlier, but I think that one thing that's really, really important is like we look at a lot of players right now and we sign players for teams or we, you know, they, they come to tryouts and we select players often very much based on one surface level skills and ability that is like a lot of players. And this is something that is very widespread. A lot of like youth teams, any sort of grassroots level soccer, you kind of have a guy that maybe, or, or a gal who who's coaching and, and running the tryout. They look around, they see the players that, you know, can colloquially play, right? They're like, Oh yeah, this kid can play. You can kind of see it in the way that their yeah. body moves. They have the coordination, whatever. A little bit above that, then maybe you kind of can inter- add a couple of different things, right? Maybe there's a player that has great accountability or great demonstrates great leadership, or maybe you know, if in the trial in the trial they they go down a goal and then they're able to kind of rally the team around them. Sort of these more uh, abstract qualities that we value in players. What I would kind of propose is that we kind of start to think about yet another kind of degree of these more nuanced skills, which are these ideas. The, of, of persistence and, and, and composure specifically, right? And mm-hmm. so I would I would kind of propose that we need to try to scout players and try to find players for your team that will who, who's like beating hearts in moments like these when you're down a goal. Their beating heart, their calmness, and their their measuredness in those moments are going to serve as the team's metronome instead of those that get really worked up, that start to underperform, that start to be nervous on the ball, that defer responsibility to others. You really, really want players. And and I hate saying this as a Barcelona fan, but Tony Kroos is an example of this, right? The guy that like Mm -hmm. literally never gets nervous. I I watched his documentary. I think it was on Amazon prime a, a while ago. And his whole thing is like, he's never gotten nervous. That is like, regardless of how good of a passer he is or how good of a long shot taker he is, the thing that is most impressive about that guy is that he doesn't get nervous. And when the team sees him and they play the ball to him and and he kind of, they they, they feed off of that energy. They feed off of that calmness and that collectedness. If you take another player who underperforms when times get tough and that's your focal point, that will also rub off on the surrounding pieces. If you have somebody that's anxious or that gets frustrated when the th- when things aren't going their way or starts to resort to these frantic finale tactics, like shooting the ball from distance because they can't get anywhere near the goal, mm-hmm. that's also going to feed onto their teammates. And so when building a squad, you kind of want to find players with that persistence and with that composure such that those influences outweigh the opposite ones. Yeah, and, otherwise, you end up like PSG you know, with a, a collapsing late in important Champions League games most years. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I think another another example of, of that, too, is like I think recently I heard someone on some podcast or maybe it was a tweet on Twitter that talked about Bruno Fernandes versus Kevin De Bruyne. And I don't have the numbers, but something to the effect of like Bruno Fernandes performs exquisitely well against a lot of teams, but maybe not necessarily the top six. And again, don't light me up in the spotify comment section because this may or may not be entirely valid based on stats it's something that i heard but i think that like what they had countered is they said that kevin de bruyne actually like overperforms when he's playing challenging opponents when he's playing the top six and so this is the type of thing where you look at it and it's like i think both players are excellent don't get me wrong i think they're both excellent in their own ways but kevin de bruyne in that sense is the type of player that you want on your team that performs ex- ex- like exceptionally well when the responsibility is on them, when we get to the, you know, they've been dominating the entire game and 
it's not going their way on the score line. You give the ball to him, and the team feeds off of that, and they kind of use that as fuel. And, and so, yeah, and it might not even be performing exceptionally well. I mean, relatively it is, but it's more just being able to perform at your normal level, even even when the times are this tough. And that applies to the same the to the whole team too. Like you want the team to be able to play in their normal way when the times get tough like this. Yeah, I totally agree. And and, and I think. The, the last kind of stage to this, too, that I want to mention is, is a concept that I'm actually taking from biology, which is this notion of desensitization. Okay, so this is a separate point. And so I'm, I'm, desensitization is a thing that has to do with neurological receptors. So it's like the way that your brain interprets things. But I'm going to give a couple of examples. And I'm sure these are things that any listener or will you yourself like have experienced before. And you're going to kind of think about this and be like, okay, yeah, I kind of understand what you're getting at here. But we'll examples of of, of, of sensory desensitization, right? When you put on socks in the morning and you feel them as they're coming on your foot and then soon enough, you don't feel them anymore. You don't really think about the entire day that you're wearing socks. They're just there and it's like a subconscious thing. You don't recognize that experience, right? Another example, first salt and vinegar chip tastes very sharp and biting. It's not like a, a pleasant experience at all. And then soon enough, Chip two, chip three, they ease up. They're not as pungent anymore. They're not as painful. And you start to enjoy it and it becomes kind of like baseline, right? Yeah. Another like example. That first... Do you have to censor that? <laughs> that? That is out. That is out. That, that I really don't know what to say about that. Oh, I man. Think that All that, right. Yeah, that one's... <laughs> sure, I, sure, I guess. That's desensitization right there. But two more, again, elementary school kid level examples, right? You go in the shower. You know or, those elementary school kids these days, Martin. They're wild. Yeah, I mean, all right, well, but maybe that was you more so than 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 our listeners. But again, another example. Pulling this back, you go into the shower and you're in there for a little while, and you keep kind of incrementing the temperature. You keep cranking it up, and then at a certain point, it gets to the hottest that the shower will get, and you can't go any further. Right. Final example. You show up to a party. There's loud music playing. It's very unpleasant when you walk down the steps. It's super loud. It's agitating. But then soon enough, it becomes background noise, right? A bunch of different examples. And what this basically shows, again, is that humans across a ton of different kind of experiences tend to very sharply interpret initial impulses, but then they exhibit a gradual tapering off of their effects, okay? This is something that's been largely studied. It's something that exists not only in humans, but in animals, in bacteria, in all sorts of different things. And so what I'm what I'm kind of hoping to do is take this idea of desensitization and actually apply this to football for coaches, right? So wow. Okay, so right. So so here's my approach. So you take that impulse that causes that overreaction, that disruption, right? And my 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 proposal is to bang that gong early instead, okay? So the concept is that like if you emphasize urgency from the start of a match, and you don't have it such that for the first 70 minutes you're doing something and then only when the 70th minute mark comes and you're down a goal, now suddenly everybody gets frantic. If you emphasize that urgency from the beginning, then the clock will soon be something that operates in the background and is much less of a focal point. If you impose pressure from the first whistle, the idea is that any errors that occur in minute zero, minute 10, minute 20, you can make up for those errors with much more time at your disposal. You can yeah. have kinks in your plan, in your system that get ironed out, right? But if you lump on all that pressure too late, then that's when your players are going to suddenly resort to chaos, right? And, and I think I would add to that too, like 
that style of play, what that will then invariably do is one, it's going to excite the fans because you're going to fly out the gates minute, minute zero, you're pressing, you're, you're playing with urgency. You know that you need to score in that moment. You need to keep pushing Two, it, it makes use of this, I guess, like otherwise debilitating rush when it can actually fuel you, when it can be something that excites you instead of makes you nervous and it kind of detracts from your performance. And the, the final point here too, is like in, in minute zero in minute 10, it simply doesn't make sense to abandon ship, right? Like no team, no matter how terrible does not keep up after 10 minutes. And so if you kind of push this early on, you you deflect the impact of this kind of, yeah, this rush of nervousness and try to convert it into something that actually empowers your team as opposed to restrains them and forces them to, you know, conjure up the low-hanging fruit ideas of Urente nodding the ball down. And, and it makes them take those risks earlier where they can eventually kind of maybe be made up for and, and try to arrive at the end of the game such that you don't have to deal with this in the first place. And yeah. so that's basically, that's where that's composure, right? That's the idea of composure. We talked about persistence for players specifically, but the idea is like you, you want to play with deliberate intention, the entire match such that the players become very aware of their nerves in a time frame where it doesn't matter as much the beginning of the game where you have time to make up for it. And then hopefully such that they'll be less surprised when they invariably show up, maybe towards the end of the game when things get tighter. And the, the goal is that eventually they become so comfortable coexisting alongside these anxieties that they just cease to exist. You bang the gong, you give them the initial impulse, they become desensitized to the experience and suddenly they're just performing at their normal level. Yeah, and I think this is the same kind of idea that managers may have when they, you know, over the course of a season, they'll say, oh, you have to treat this game against a small team very, very seriously, you know, and they try and get players into that mentality of, you know, having it be a big game all the time so that when the big games do come along, you're not like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, you're used to it. And I think that's kind of the same idea of having this, you know, bedded in for the entire match that, you know, there's not going to be this shift in the 80th minute because we've been playing like this the whole time. But I, I think there are some dangers to that, though. And I think the first one, you know, talking about this concept of desensitization, which I really like. I think this is a very valid thing. I like the way you've approached it. But I think, I mean, taking this idea even further, if you're telling players pretty much like, okay, we're going to play full intensity the entire time, maybe they get desensitized to that over time, too, where it stops meaning as much. Because, you know, maybe they, they're able to do that for a season. Maybe the next season, if the coach comes back and says, all right, guys, we're going to play really hard again. Maybe it means a little bit less. And then hmm. you come back the next season, this coach is like, we're going to play 100% the whole time. And you're like, yeah, okay, we've been doing that for the last two years. That starts to mean a bit less, and maybe that can slip. And I think I've seen something like that happen with Liverpool over the past couple of seasons. I think Liverpool are a team, like you kind of described, where I think Klopp has taken this approach to desensitization, where he was like, in 2018, we were a team that just went all out from the opening whistle. We tried to end games early. We tried to knock into these situations. We tried to kind of just keep the same intensity throughout. And it was great. We, we had some problems with that team. We didn't end up winning the league or the Champions League. But it was a fun team to watch. And I think yeah. over the past couple of seasons, we've still been a team that plays at one speed. But that speed has gotten a little bit slower. And now we've gone from, you know, coming out and blowing out teams in the first half to coming out not showing up for the first half and then not really being able to ramp up in the second half. And that's another thing I want to talk about too, is kind of this idea of ramping up. And like, if you're, if you're telling players, like you have to play this whole game at a hundred percent, 
like where do you go from there like if it's not working like what, what does the coach even say at that point like if, if you're saying that you're already playing with your maximum effort with the ideal game plan for this then what's he going to say oh give 110 percent it just doesn't mean anything i don't know where you have to go from there totally i think it's a coaching challenge and i think that that's something that yeah it's a motivation question really is like when your team has done everything and things haven't gone their way one in the game how do you make adjustments and how do you explain that to the players such that it makes sense and isn't totally impossible to achieve or makes no sense no makes no sense whatsoever two maybe you've done everything you possibly can and you still haven't won the match and maybe you deserve to have won the, to have won the match how do you kind of explain that in the locker room afterwards and we can again maybe do an entire episode on how to motivate like when things don't go your way in that sense and how to kind of like find closure in circumstances in which that doesn't happen. But I think yeah. kind of tacking on to your counters, I, I also agree. I think there's some things with this desensitization concept that fall short. Another, another issue here too, is like, it's similar to what you're saying. If, if you bang the gong early, right. If you're talking about like a season, right. Where Liverpool is like, okay, we're going to be gung ho this for every single game. They blow out teams. And then year two, it's like, okay, guys, guess what our tactic is being yeah. gung ho. And then year three, they ask them again, like, okay, Klopp, like, what are you going to do different this year? It's like, we're going to be, be gung-ho again. I, I think another thing you it's can... It's tough to completely to... avoid complacency and just getting getting a bit lazy with it if you're trying to do the same thing every year like that, or it's every day. Me- yeah, it's like a more meta view of this desensitization concept. What I would then argue, too, is like, if you change the lens to a specific match, right, mm-hmm. and you, before the game, everybody gets in the huddle, everybody's talking and getting hyped up, and they're saying, okay, first five... My, my coach, when I was a young player, used to always say this. First five minutes, first 10 minutes, we put one in. First five minutes, come out like r- flying, right? What then might also happen is once you do that first five minutes, then you see a tapering off. And so the question then becomes, okay, if you've banged the the, the, the gong or the sound of the alarm at minute zero, maybe then the players actually become desensitized after it. And 70 minutes later, when they're down a goal and they've done everything they feel like they can, they, they kind of have this same sort of experience. And the analogy there is like, yeah, think about if you have a bite of spicy food at minute zero, you're in the stands and you got something spicy. Okay. Another analogy. A nice kebab. You have a spicy kebab minute zero and you're like, okay, wow, that was like really spicy. But I know that my next one's obviously going to be not so bad because of this desensitization concept. But instead now you wait 70 minutes. When you eat your second kebab 70 minutes later, it's still going to be spicy. It's still going to be painful. You haven't done anything to reduce that effect. And so another kind of issue here is like, yeah, that initial impulse might actually die off so much that by the end of the game, you still have a situation where the team's system is just shocked based on this new situation where you're down. And so I think that there's a lot to kind of go back and forth with here, but this idea of desensitization is one that I think coaches realistically can employ and think about how can I make it so that this, these nerves that come out of nowhere, maybe don't come out of nowhere so much. That's really my approach with this. Yeah. I like that. Um, well, I haven't sworn yet, so I think it's about time to conclude this <laughs> podcast. Oh my God. We, <laughs> You've got your one swear word quota. I honestly don't know. At some point, we're probably going to get an email from, I don't know, Spotify, or if we ever get this up on Apple Podcasts, it's going to say, hey, this bleeping out thing you guys do doesn't really qualify for making it not explicit, but I, I it hope does, not. doesn't it? I, other people use the bleeps, don't they? I mean, we're not saying the words, right? We yeah. haven't said anything problematic, necessarily. I, I didn't even say <laughs>
talking during that. I said, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, I'm using up some of my curses for the next couple of weeks. So yeah, it, you've totally blown through your, your limit. Yeah, and enjoy the next two episodes, elementary schoolers. You're going to love it. <laughs> oh, but get, getting back to this one. So, Martin, this is this is kind of a mess. We I feel like we were a lot more casual in the second half of this podcast, maybe just in this one in general. But, you know, let's let's pull it together. If I'm getting this right, what we've kind of gone over here is this idea of frantic finales. And yes. they're great when they work, but they don't really work all that often. And if I'm getting this right, your view on this is that you think teams should try to avoid this frantic finale whenever possible. You think Correct. they should try and structure things in a way where you never get to that point. And if you do, you already have a very predetermined plan of how you're going to try to change things. Absolutely. Yep. I think you got it. And I, I think that, yes, like the, the main idea is that if you, we're going to bring it back to the pirate ship. Okay. And you're going to hate me for this, but we're going to talk about the pirate ship again. Maybe that, maybe we have to change the logo for this TT thing to just be a pirate ship. But yeah. my, my point here is like, reliable success, continuous success, something that you can, a plan that you can design that's going to work more consistently and you can you can have faith in that is found in a squad that fights even if the ship is under siege, okay? That it really only takes one or two soldiers or, or, or whatever, crewmen, to jump overboard this pirate ship for a swarm to follow. We saw this with the Super League, right? We saw that even though you had this opinion that, you know, oh, well, if one of those, you know, one of the pirates jumps overboard, they're going to replace the pirate and they're just going to spontaneously combust a pirate. You know, it's just going to appear and we're going to have a new pirate. Right. Yeah. What what actually happens and what we saw with the Super League is that as soon as one pirate jumps, everyone else follows. And so as soon as you have one player that starts doing these erratic late game tactics that starts you know, oh, we've been passing the ball around real nice all game, but now I'm just going to dribble down the line and beat eight players. Everybody's going to sort of do the same thing, that those nerves are going to feed off onto other players. It's going to be a collective anxiety that grows and reduces the overall quality into something that isn't organized, that isn't practiced, and is basically just chaos. And so my statement here then, high level, is that our best chances of victory are to just keep on firing. And the way that I kind of want to tie this off with, again, I'm going to have a, a trio now of late game analogies, oh. three three separate ideas that I think are reflective of of this of this concept okay you sure and you so, want to introduce these drastic changes let's lay it into the match <laughs> so here well here's what i'll say though right i've been using analogies the entire time so i think this is legal from that from that mm. angle sure sure but so here's here's the here's the idea right three different things one first first one is what i'm calling the ice cube analogy okay so for anybody that's read uh i think it's atomic habits by james clear this comes from that book but the idea is that if imagine that you are in a room, this unlikely scenario, again, this is accessible to elementary school kids. So enjoy this. If you, mm -hmm. know, if you will, you're in a room by yourself with an ice cube and the ice cube is sitting on a table. Okay. And, and you're, you're hoping to see that ice cube melt, right? It's a weird science project. I don't know. The teacher told you to do it. You're just in there. It's like, you know, when you're a third grader, you don't really have much agency. You just kind of do what the teacher says. Yeah. So and you don't have much else going on too. So watching an ice cube melt might be the highlight of your day. Who knows? I mean, that might be the best part of your week. I agree. Right. So you're sitting in the room, you're trying to watch this ice cube melt. Okay. And the room is actually quite chilly. You've got your parka on and you're, you're, you're comfortable, but, but maybe your nose is a little red, right? It's let's say that the, the room is at 25 degrees. Okay. And so 
what you're able to then do is you're able to then bump the, the temperature of the room up incrementally by one degree, right? So you go from 25 degrees to 26 degrees to 27 degrees to 28 degrees to 29 degrees. And you pause the teacher and you're like, okay, teacher, God, damn, I, I swear to God, when is this ice cube going to melt? I'm sitting here waiting for this ice cube to melt and it's not melting. We've already bumped up the degrees so many times. When is this going to happen? And he's just like, okay, what are you talking about, kiddo? Like, just watch this, right? So you're the third grader and you're like, all right, this is taking so long. You bump it up. You go 29 to 30 to 31 to 32. You're in this delicate balanced state of equilibrium. And then only finally at 33 the ice cube begins to melt, okay? And so you observe that, you write that down in your little science fair notebook. But the important thing to grasp here is that if you had stopped bumping up the temperature by one single degree at any point before this like critical threshold, you never would have been able to see the ice cube melt. If that third grader's impatience had really gotten to him and he'd stormed out of the room, he never would have been able to, you know, have his kind of final concluding moment, right? And so the way that I'm tying this to what we're talking about here is that the best chances of victory are to keep on firing. If you have a tactic, if you have an approach, if you have a style that you have practiced for your entire season, or maybe even like you said, your, your two goal, your Zidane, you've done it for that week. You've prepared for that game and you've done something. You yeah. practice it. You know how it's going to work. The, the, the best way to assure your victory is not to stop incrementing the thermostat when it gets to the 80th minute, when it gets to the 70th minute. Maybe it's entirely possible that you are just shy of hitting that critical, you know, scale tipping threshold, right? So I have two two more quicker analogies that support the same concept, right? You have a boulder, you have a chiseler. Okay, this is something that I think is on the San Antonio Spurs locker room or something. I heard this. This is something about from Greg Popovich. That you have a, a guy with a pickaxe and he's hitting the he's hitting the rock, he's hitting the rock, and only at the hundredth time does the rock finally break, right? If he had stopped at any point prior in the 99th hit, he would have taken all of that effort that went up to debilitating the rock on the inside that maybe wasn't visible on the outside. And you can make, you can draw this analogy to a team that, you know, you've been doing something well the entire match. Your work, your, 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 it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. You haven't gotten that goal yet. You haven't split the rock, mm -hmm. but you've been tiring them. You've been exhausting them. You're almost, almost there. You cannot stop at hit 99, right? Analogy number three. I think it's pronounced Sorite's paradox, but this idea that if you have one grain of sand and you put a grain of sand on, on the table and then you have two grains of sand, right? You add a third one, you add a fourth and we keep on doing this. There's like a threshold at which you would look at that pile of sand and say, you know what? Yeah, like that's a pile of sand. But if you had one grain or two grains or three grains, maybe you wouldn't consider it to be a pile just yet. So there's kind of like this unspoken threshold again, where suddenly you go from just being a bunch of pieces of sand to being a mound of sand. And it's the same exact concept that these tiny incremental moments might appear innocuous, right? When you go from sand pellet or sand grain 67 to 68, it might not seem like much in the moment, but they might be building up to something that finally, finally tips the scales. You might be just inches away, but uh, you might not be. And I guess I have my pick of these analogies, which to work with and kind of frame my response to this. I like I like the boulder one. I'm going to go with that. The boulder chiseler right. works. It's true that eventually you will break it if you have unlimited time, you know, but in soccer, you don't have unlimited time. And if we treat, you know, if you say, if we say you do one swing a minute or something, 
and you've gotten to the 85th swing, the 85th minute, and it hasn't worked yet. It's like, yes, like you said, it's entirely possible that you're just a couple swings away and then the 87th or 88th minute, this is going to break and you're going to get the goal. That's also possible that this isn't going to break until the hundredth swing and the final whistle is going to be gone by then. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're just out of time. And I think I like there's, there's some ways you can kind of tell which is more likely if you're looking at a match, just looking, like you said, in the Granada game was one where maybe Barcelona looked like they would have scored, like maybe the boulder was getting weaker. But there's other games where it's not. There's games where the boulder might even be getting stronger, where teams are sitting back even more in these final few minutes and become even harder to break down. And at Mm -hmm. that point, if you've been chipping away at this thing with this precision instrument for 90 minutes and it looks like it's getting harder, can I really blame a coach for just turning the thing around and starting smacking the rock with a handle just in desperation, just trying to get something? I don't think I can. I think you should do that. And I think it's a fantastic point to end on. I think that... There's a way to perceive these frantic finales as being utterly deleterious, as I've kind of argued throughout the course of this podcast and in the article that if you're interested in looking at this idea in greater depth and with greater eloquence, definitely check it out. It's called Why the Hail Mary Fails in Our Football on TouchlineTheory.com. But I think that this is something that we would love to hear other people's thoughts on too, that if anybody in our very, very small audience has any feedback or is of, you know, in, in Will's camp on this is in my camp on this, as always, we're here to disagree on purpose. We're here to kind of discuss contrasting opinions, different ideologies, even if, you know, one of them is something that's taken a lot of careful thought to produce on a website. And then the other one has been, improvised and 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 still very very coherent and brings up very good points like the things that will has talked about today with like banging oh, with the handle which yes oh am oh. i <laughs> are you the one you're the one that has the the organized thought process and mine are all improvised i don't know i, I spent a lot of time on this outline martin i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> okay so then maybe just varying degrees of of thought we're not talking sure. like twitter level no thought blasting off Uh-oh. comments that are reactionary uh, you would way never more than that, 140 words went into this don't worry there you go but yeah i think that kind of wraps up our show i think this was our our first uh foray into basically taking something that was already on the blog and diving into it a little bit deeper on the podcast i think our hope is that in the future we are going to have some sort of of mixture of things that we're looking to explore here and kind of off the cuff dive into um, versus things that we maybe one of us has spent a lot of time thinking about and is interested in hearing some feedback or just kind of proposing this idea or this opinion that they hold. Um, And so this is our first attempt at doing that. Um, Yeah, and stick with us as we keep on attempting these things and getting better. I promise we will get better. Um, If you're listening and there's something that you don't like about the podcast, don't worry, we're getting (laughs) rid of that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah comment on spotify as will has said plenty of times before comment on spotify fill up our spotify comments um will has to be clean in the next three episodes because he said he dropped the f-bomb like four times earlier so Just, yeah you can look forward to that a very clean episode that you can listen to with your kids in the back seat if that is your situation um I'm just going to be really mean to you i'm not going to swear but <laughs> i'm just gonna get insulted yeah i i gotta get something out you know yeah you can't be too nice for too long it 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 eats at your insides if you do that (laughs) 
That's what but okay. So. That's what you've heard. <laughs> I think that, yeah, so I'm going to do the, the, the typical plug. We're at Touchline Theory on Twitter. Um, yeah. Please. We're, work, we're working on the triple threat handle too for next time. Yeah, we're not going to do that. I, I think that I, I, I'm, I'm desperately hoping that somebody will go and, and, and light Will up and, and hit him with some reactionary, uh, you know, comments or thoughts and tell him that based on three episodes of this podcast, it's an utter abomination and that they won't be listening anymore. I think he'd really enjoy that. So you can find him at what? At WA underscore theory. Um, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. He's got a very identifiable logo that I think hopefully you'll all enjoy. You can find me at, at MG underscore theory. It's the same kind of format. Um, we're still trying to get this thing up on Apple podcasts. So I'm hoping that that will maybe go through at some point, but if yeah. not, um, we, we thank you for, for listening on whichever platform you chose, whether that's Stitcher or Deezer or any of these other kind of weirder ones, or if it's just Spotify, like we've been sending our friends. Um, but that's, I think all I've got. Will, any concluding thoughts? Oh, keep listening people. We had 40 people listen to the first one. Only 15 of you came back. You know, there's people <laughs> jumping off the pirate ship. We can't have any more. Yeah. We're, we got to test what our numbers look like when we're not force feeding it to people. So Anyway, I think that's all for me. Um, Till next time, folks. Till next time.